and welcome to History Zine Episode 7. And we have a packed show for you this week. We have a linguistic history trivia bit that will tell you how to gird your loins, the woeful tale of Admiral Bing who was shot for not doing his utmost, and in our Spanish succession part we have the tale of Admiral Rook, and some black-hearted treachery from Max Emanuel of Bavaria. But first, I have something very special for you. I have an interview with Tony Cox of the Binge Thinking History podcast. Now, Tony started his podcast just a few weeks before I started this one, so we're fellow travellers on the podcast oceans. I really enjoy Tony's podcast. He seems to have a special knack at picking out those relevant details that will shed light upon the whole scenario. He's recently done a series on those figures in English history that had an influence on the sort of libertarian thinking that was codified in the American Constitution. So, without any more ado, let's go to the interview. Tony, hello. Hello, Jim. Hello there, good to have you along. Thank you very much. Now, Tony, you've been doing this podcast since, when was it, last October? Yeah, I started in October. Kicked off originally because I and and your good self are posters on a web forum run by a guy called Dan Carlin in the US. And originally it was, I, I started having an experiment with podcasting just to see if I could do some audio replies to some of the topics that turned up. And they spoke regularly about things like the US Constitution. So I kind of thought, why not try and put together some podcasts about the US Constitution? And it just kind of went from there, really. And that was a four... Was it four podcast series, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a four-parter. I mean, uh, what I've found is that uh, from the way I do it is I try and do a kind of documentary style, which means that it's not going to be over in like 15 minutes. So what I ended up finding is that the natural pace for me is to do them for about half an hour, 40 minutes, almost like a TV or a radio documentary, because being a big, huge Radio 4 fan, um, <laughs> that format seems to kind of be embedded in the psyche of the, of, of the way I kind of create these things. Ah, uh, yes. Do you, do you base your style on anybody in particular? I'm a big fan of uh, historians like uh, Michael Woods and David Starkey and those kind of guys. Um, I think they're great. And, I, and I, if I can mimic them in some small way, then um, I think probably I'm, I'm not doing too badly. Yes, yeah, there's some wonderful stuff. I like uh, David Starkey's Monarchy series. I think that's quite fun. Well, actually, it's funny you should say that because the, the Monarchy, uh, the book Monarchy, I use a lot of material from that for the, the historical background for the US Constitution piece. So I didn't want to just dive straight into the US Constitution because I thought, where do these guys get their ideas from? Because before they, you know, before independence, they were all British. So maybe there are their ideas for that came from British constitutional thinking. And a lot of the material, a lot of the research and stuff like that came from monarchy. Ah, yes. I haven't read that. Well, it's, it, it, the reason, again, another thing that inspired me is I went to a, a reader's festival and he was there speaking, talking about Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of inspired me slightly to kind of use some of the, his material as kind of background for the whole U.S. Constitution thing. Because, of course, the fact the, the guys were, or well, the British Americans were all Protestants, because it was hard to believe, because of the control the Catholic Church had had over Europe during the years prior to that, that they would have had that kind of revolutionary fervor if they'd been Roman Catholics rather than being, um, being Protestants. Simon de Montfort's a big figure in that podcast series, uh, why in particular Simon de Montfort? Because there are, there are um, so many people that, that could be said to be the father of republicanism. Yeah, I, I guess, one, because his plaque is on the 
the House of Representatives wall always on Congress. His, his plaque's in one of the US constitutional buildings. And so his, he kind of pops up, ironically, um, alongside Edward I, who was responsible for his, his final demise. But the, the, he's an interesting figure because he was really ended up being the leader of the barons who revolted against the king at the time and he ended up being the kind of de facto leader because he was and because he was related to the royal family as well which kind of added an extra piquancy to the whole thing so i think that's the reason why he's seen as the maybe the kind of world's first first republican um, although i'm not actually sure they ever in those days would have thought of it as republicanism they were just seeing it as kind of trying to put the king in his place well, yes, I mean, really, he's just another aristocrat, isn't he? Just trying to fight his... Color. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the irony of it is, is that the people who were seen to be the kind of freedom fighters were the people who just wanted to maintain their own positions anyway. So I can't imagine for one moment that de Montfort, if he'd ever become kind of king or, or leader for any long period of time, would have wanted, um, you know, votes for everybody or anything like that. <laughs> Not at all, no. <laughs> Absolutely. Right, I want to move on to uh, your latest series. You've just started a series on the Battle of Britain. Uh, yeah. And what first inspired you to well podcast on the Battle I, of Britain? I guess being yeah, being being an Englishman of a, a particular age, um, I guess that the Battle of Britain as a child was kind of locked into the the kind of psyche through you know buying airfix models and all that kind of stuff and always seeing pictures of spitfires and hurricanes in books and those kind of things so that that kind of always has interested me in the kind of like that mid-century aviation period and then funnily enough where i live now is just around the corner from the old hawker aircraft factory where they used to make hurricanes mm-hmm. and my next door neighbor i was just having a chat with him over the fence one day and we were talking about the area and this kind of stuff because there's a plaque just up the road where the la- one of the last v2s on london landed and he was saying that, that he remembers seeing hu- partially constructed hurricanes you know with the wings and the fuselage on low loaders being driven up kingston hill to go down to one of the airfields like brooklands and those kind of things yes and so i kind of thought well that's interesting why don't i kind of have a bit of a bit of a closer look at that and then as and, and we, we've spoken about this before the bbc history magazine which said you know the battle of britain was actually pretty much an inconsequence because the germans never could have invaded because the royal navy just would have rocked up into the english channel and just blown everyone away and so i was kind of thinking well is is the idea of the battle of britain and its mythology is it is, is that as as important as the actual event itself mm-hmm. and i think you can explore that quite well in the podcast mm. you know so many people when they talk about this time it's the propaganda is almost as important as the actions. Yes, you're right. I mean, I think the thing about the, let's say, for take for example, the Spitfire, for example, you only have to look at the statistics about pilots being shot down by particular aircraft and who was flying what aircraft to realise that actually the biggest destroyer of German aircraft was actually the Hawker Hurricane and, and not the Spitfire. Now, there's probably two reasons for that. One is that the, the Hawker Hurricane was around in larger numbers, probably almost two to one. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the hurricane was used as the bomber killer, if you like, used particularly to attack bombers. Now, of course, the RAF pilots obviously didn't have the luxury of just going after bombers because often if you were in a squadron of hurricanes that got bounced by a bunch of Messerschmitts, you had to fight them off before you could go and shoot the bombers down. But um, it meant that, of course, that, you know, chances are, as I, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, if you, if you were a German and shot down over southern England, the chances are it was a hurricane that shot you down, not a Spitfire. Yet the... The kind of knights of the air thing that was kicking around in the Luftwaffe at the time, they saw themselves as just being in aeroplanes rather than on horses with armour. Mm-hmm. Even when they got shot down, would ask, it was a Spitfire that shot me down, not a Hurricane. <laughs> so, in fact, all Luftwaffe pilots got shot down by Spitfires, which probably meant, <laughs> which, is, which is ironic seeing as the chances are they were actually shot down by the Hurricane. But the Hurricane was just seen as a less glamorous piece of equipment than the Spitfire. 
because of that mythology that had built up around it. Yeah, the, and, the and, and what was great was people. The star, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and what was great was people like Churchill, for example, did nothing to dispel those myths at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, positively encouraged people to believe that there was all these beautiful spitfires flying around in the sky, where actually it was this rugged-looking partially canvas covered aeroplane called a hurricane that did most of the work yes of course because church was trying to push this myth or, well i suppose it wasn't really a myth this feeling that everybody was one big family and we were fighting off this terrible aggressor and taking that mm. message over to the united states and giving them that message because um when, yeah. when, when did they join they weren't quite in the war yet were they no, the Americans. The Americans didn't join, obviously, until um, Pearl Harbor, which was some, obviously, some twelve months after the end of the Battle of Britain. So they, so I mean, this is the other great thing about the Battle of Britain is no one, no one can quite decide when it started or finished. It's, it seemed to be a level of activity, and then there was like a hump of activity, which we now call the Battle of Britain. But the Luftwaffe and the RAF were still fighting before and after those dates. So the general feeling was it started at the beginning of July and ended sometime in kind of October, November time, and of course. That was 1940, and the, the Americans didn't join the war, of course, until 12 months later when, uh, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Yes. Right, I now want to talk to you a bit about your process. So you've, mm. you've, you've decided you're going to do this podcast on the Battle of Britain. What do, mm-hmm. what do you do next? Well, normally what I do is I pick a couple of books which I think are going to cover the topic in, in, in maybe in slightly different ways. So I'll probably have a core book which I refer to. So with the Constitution thing, once I got to about Henry VIII, it was David Starkey's monarchy. Um, with this history podcast, with the Black Battle of Britain, there's two books I've been using as kind of source material or, or kind of sparks for inspiration. One is Richard Overy's The Battle of Britain, which is a quite a short book, but it, it kind of covers everything really succinctly. And then there's a much, much bigger book by a guy called Stephen Bungie, I think it is, because I don't have them with me at the moment, called The Most Dangerous Enemy, mm-hmm. um, because that was the name the Luftwaffe pilots gave to the channel. Chances if they got hit or, or got damaged, they'd ended up in the channel anyway. So that became known as The Most Dangerous Enemy. And his book is extremely detailed about almost almost on a daily basis what happened about production numbers of aircraft about who was shooting down who so and because because this is quite a modern event there's still huge amount of record about the individual pilots so we know who the first pilot was shot down on july the 10th for example when the battle officially started so there's kind of so i'm using those kind of two books a very detailed book and a very kind of overviewy type book i then tend to write a script for it Mm. i'm not a particularly good ad libber um, I think you do a far far better job of that than I do so not wanting to miss anything out I write I write everything down as a script and then I go back and, and edit it and change it and modify it and try and make it as naturalistic as possible because the last thing I want people to do is think that I'm reading off a script when I do it and You've just given it away the, now, haven't you? I know, I know, I know. Some of us, luckily for me, some of the most of the feedback seems to assume that I, I don't ad lib it, and it is rather rather heavily scripted. But what I tend to do is, when I'm recording it, I I do go back and again make further modifications if something sounds particularly clumsy. So I try and write it as realistically as possible, and especially if you're doing 40, 45 minutes, that's a really long time to ad lib stuff. Yes, and and get every and cover all the minutiae of all the stuff you want to do, and then I, and then I just go back um, and record it and then edit it and then kind of you know do all the little all the bits and pieces you need to do and then post it up on um, on libsyn so how much time will you spend editing oh gosh so if you've got a 50 minute podcast that probably takes a good with all the stops and starts and ifs and ups and buts and all that kind of stuff probably takes about two hours maybe three hours and then of course editing probably takes twice maybe three times that because of course you keep back and re-listening and then chopping and changing and and modifying things so probably 
after I've recorded it's probably another six to seven hours of work mm-hmm. um, to, to, to finish it all off usually done in little stages because of course real life gets in the way yes that's that's not a bad average actually because um, I will if, if I've recorded something uh, say it's an hour long I would expect to spend oh. about eight times that with editing and oh, fiddling gosh. about with it <laughs> right because the other, the other thing as well is I tried to, and, and I'm, I'm getting kind of mixed. Well, mix, mix is probably not, not quite so fair. Is obviously I try and do some of the voices to do the quotes and stuff. Mm. And I'm very, very, um, I guess, kind of unsure whether or not that's a good thing to do or not. Because I'm not a um, Mikey Arwood type character and can do lots of different voices. So I kind of, I put those in to make it interesting. And then, you know, um, hopefully people, people think that's okay. Because trying to find the real versions of these quotes and all that kind of stuff is really tough. Apart from Churchill, where you can find stuff about Churchill everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that reminds me. I got some interesting feedback from Dutch Anne. You know, Anne is a man. Dot blogspot. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. Uh, talking yep. about... The fact he likes to hear different voices on a podcast, so he'll like to hear yes. a few different things. And so I, I suspect that, in a way, is what you're trying to do with creating different voices. I, I guess he's just trying to make it slightly more, slightly more entertaining, if you like, rather than just some being some kind of dry run through of you know of chronological events. And because obviously I, I'm not can't stretch to having a full entourage of, of voiceover artists that I can call upon. Mm. I've tried to do as, as many of those things as possible, although obviously my number of Scottish accents and Welsh accents and, and German accents is fairly limited. I mean, I think I have a, you know, one German accent and I don't want all the Luftwaffe pilots to all sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you'll soon find out from your public whether they like them or not. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, some people have just have just said it's okay, and there's one person said they made, it makes them cringe. I got a, feed, a bit of feedback from some chap on iTunes saying he loved absolutely loves the podcast, but he, the, the voices make him cringe. <laughs> um, but you know, it can't be that bad if he still gave it five stars. Oh, good stuff! Right, uh, finally, I want to ask you where you're going next. Firstly, how long do you think oh, this gosh. series will go on for? That, um, and then what what you're going to do after that? Right, okay, I, I think probably I. The Battle of Britain probably will cover maybe another two or three episodes um, after this one. So the next episode six will probably cover the early the early Channel stuff. So the Luftwaffe attacking convoys in the Channel rather than actually getting stuck into the RAF. Um, and then of course we move into August and September where it gets really really tough. So that's probably going to be another two or three episodes after this. And then after that, it's a really good question. I, I um, have a great book about the history of the Royal Navy. Um, and because my father was in the Royal Navy as well, it, the history of the Royal Navy is a very tempting thing to tackle in a series of, say, I don't know, six or seven episodes. But also as well, quite fancy some stuff on the Romans in Britain, kind of legacy that the Romans left behind when they, when they left. Um, maybe something on the Crusades. I've had a request from someone to talk about the French Revolution and if I can kind of span or spin a, an English twist into that, like the Scarlet Pimpernel or something, maybe I can do some kind of stuff on the French Revolution. And didn't you mention to me having a look at something as well early on? You said I could unpick something. Oh, the Water Roses, that was it. Ah, yes, because it's... Um, one of the things I like about your podcast is that you manage to pick out very relevant details and put together a really coherent story. Because the problem with any history podcast is there are so many facts, so many details. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 indeed. you know, if you can pick out interesting details and details that tell more of a story than is what is actually contained in the detail, then you've, Mm. you've told a, what would you call it, a very full story, a very compact, comprehensive story. And I think, the, yeah. the War of the Roses is so complicated and it would be nice to hear you unpick all those details and get stuck in there. 
Okay. Well, maybe maybe um, I'll wait for the Royal Navy then, and after the Battle of Britain, go back in time again um, and try and unpick the War of the Roses. Um, I, it's, it's a subject of which I know not an awful lot, so um, I probably need to do some some extensive research on it. But I know I did touch on it when um, with Henry the Seventh, yes, um, killing Richard at the Battle of Bosworth. So um, I could probably start from there and work backwards. <laughs> maybe so <laughs> well thank you very much that was no well i enjoyed it and i hope oh thank you no I, I did too thank you very much jim and i hope our listeners will enjoy and, it and, too. and when's episode seven coming out back sometime in the next 12 days oh good lordy okay well hopefully i can get episode six out sometime around then as well but i'm going to be forever playing catch up with you now <laughs> I really enjoyed doing that interview. It was over a Skype session a couple of weeks ago now. Great fun. And now our linguistic history trivia bit. I want to talk to you about girding your loins. You've probably heard the phrase girding your loins or to gird your loins. And it usually means to get ready for something. But it's such a strange phrase. So I was determined to find out what it is, why it is, where it came from. And why we use this phrase. And one of the first recorded uses of this phrase is by Paul writing to the Ephesians in a Roman jail. And he uses the phrase to girt your loins with truth, which is quite an odd usage. I presume it just means to get ready for the truth in that Jesus has brought the truth and you must make your minds ready to receive it. But how was it used in Roman times? And how would you gird your loins in Roman times? Well, there's a nice little description on the website Real Armour of God. And it says, how to gird your loins. This was accomplished by pulling up the fabric of the knee-length tunic. So the length in front stopped at your upper thigh. And collecting the excess material in your front, you pull the material forward so the back of your tunic is snug against your backside. Next... You took the extra front material down between your legs, gathered it up behind you. At this point, you collect half the material behind you evenly on each side of your back, left and right. The final step involves wrapping each side of the material around your waist and tying it together in front. It sounds quite a performance, doesn't it? But it's, it's nowhere near as difficult as it sounds. It's just when you're wearing like a dress type thing, if you're getting ready to go into battle, you'll, you'll want all that material out of the way. So you're just pulling it up and tying a knot in it. And hopefully it'll keep everything sort of fastened in and safe while you go into battle. So there you are. If ever you feel the need to gird your loins, you now know how to do it. And now I want to tell you a fascinating little tale. While I was preparing the section on the War of the Spanish Succession... I was looking at the tale of Admiral Rook. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But I was looking at the tale of Admiral Rook and he had, did an attack on Cadiz. And it didn't go altogether well. And it reminded me of a quote from Candide. And the quote is something like, In this country, they execute an admiral every now and again to encourage the others. And then I remembered that Voltaire was, was referring to a particular admiral. There was a story about an admiral who was executed for not doing his duty or for not for not doing something well enough. So I had a bit of a dig about and came up with a most extraordinary tale. This is the tale of Admiral John Bing. 
Now, Admiral Bing had been in the Navy many, many years. He was made a lieutenant at 19 and eventually became an admiral in 1755, when he was 51. Now, the island of Menorca was under threat from French forces, and Admiral Bing was sent out to the Mediterranean with quite a small fleet and some soldiers to reinforce the fort at Menorca. This was a fort called Fort St. Philip. Now, Admiral Bing wasn't too happy about this mission. He felt he hadn't been given enough ships. He felt he hadn't been given enough soldiers. And he put this in writing to the Admiralty before he went. He arrived at Menorca on the 19th of May and tried to establish communications with the fort. But then, a French fleet appeared. Now, the leading ships of both fleets engaged and the British ship suffered some damage. Admiral Bing disengaged his fleet and sailed to Gibraltar and by June the 29th the fort was in French hands. Now there's a bit of a backstory to this in that another commander called Matthews had been executed for attacking a fleet out of line and causing a disorganized attack on the enemy and this was Bing's excuse for pulling out of the engagement in that his fleet were out of line and he felt he couldn't perform an organised attack and so cited the beheading of Matthews as a reason for not pursuing the attack with the French fleet as well as the fact that the French fleet were actually more powerful than his. There's also another backstory. There's a backstory about a man called Phillips. In 1745... A lieutenant called Baker Phillips had served under a captain who brought his ship into action unprepared. Now, when his captain was killed, Phillips surrendered his ship. He decided it could no longer be defended, so he surrendered to the French. He was sentenced by a court-martial and he was shot. Now, there were many who said that this sentence wouldn't have been pronounced upon a full admiral or a captain. But because this man was a lieutenant, then it made it so much easier to pass judgment on him. And so the Articles of War were amended at the righteous anger at this execution, so that there could be only one penalty for dereliction of duty. And that penalty would apply to all. And of course, that penalty was death. So this put the prosecutors in the trial of Admiral Bing in a bit of a pickle because there was no doubt that he had contravened the Articles of War. The specific crime was not doing his utmost in the face of the enemy. And it couldn't be denied that it was true that he hadn't done his utmost. However, they didn't really feel that this was an offence worthy of execution. But they had to pronounce him guilty. So they put in a clause asking that King George use his powers for clemency. Now, King George didn't use these powers, possibly fearing that this was too delicate a situation for him to get involved, possibly fearing for his own reputation in the country. And so, Admiral Bing was executed, and many people still consider this a travesty of justice. His descendants still today are fighting for a pardon for Admiral Bing. And yet, have a look around at some of the writings you'll see on the net about this period, about the execution of Admiral Bing, and you'll see a kind of consensus of opinion that actually this did encourage the British Navy, this did encourage the admirals, and Possibly without Admiral Bing, we may never have had Admiral Nelson, who famously said that no captain would ever be blamed for attacking an enemy. So the whole ethos of the British Navy changed around this time. 
and became very biased towards offensive actions rather than defensive. And the majority of historians you'll read seem to believe that this is one of the things that gave the British Navy the edge during the 18th and 19th centuries. So I'll leave the story of Admiral Bing there. It's a great story. I've just given you an outline, but there's a lot more out there on the net, including some of his own correspondence. But I will leave it there because I want to get on to my bit about the War of the Spanish Succession and it's already running quite long as this podcast. Just before I do, I want to also mention some forums I've logged on to a few times called historum.com. That's H-I-S-T-O-R-U-M dot C-O-M. There's a lot of fascinating people on here with some wonderful ideas and some wonderful conversations going on, some debates, some debates on historical topics. It's quite good. I was struck particularly by one question posted by Pantagruel and he posted the question, what I want to ask all of you is... Which is the most meaningful? Is it the big picture of events, the experience of individuals, or the myths that are created by every people or nation to explain their history? Fascinating question, and it poses some real fundamental questions about how we portray history, how we teach history, and how we pass on history. Do we, do we give them the facts? Do we give them the big picture? Do we concentrate on the myths that bind us all together that come from different events in history? Or do we look at personal experiences? There are a lot of these kind of discussions on these forums, well worth having a look at. And now, on to our section on the War of the Spanish Succession. Now we talked last time about the events of 1702 and we focused mainly upon the siege actions on the fortresses of the River Meuse. However, joined together here in the alliance we have two primary sea powers. This is the Dutch Republic and England. You'd think there would be some naval actions going on. And of course there were. Admiral George Rook and James Duke of Ormond commanding powerful fleet boasting 25 ships of the line, arrived at Cadiz on August the 23rd, 1702. They had instructions from the Admiralty to take Cadiz and for that to be a port from which they could control the Mediterranean, from which they could supply Eugene's armies in northern Italy and from which they could attack France from the Mediterranean coast. Now Rook arrived at Cadiz and... He held a meeting of captains and they saw the defences at Cadiz. They saw the boom that had been placed across the harbour. They saw the fleet in Cadiz and they decided it was a bit too much to take on. I.e. they probably weren't going to be able to take it in a head-on naval assault. So they didn't try sailing into the harbour. They didn't try to brave the batteries and the boom. They landed troops intending for these troops to take the various forts and therefore take the gun batteries out of commission. Now this led to a lot of soldiers, marines, romping about in the villages around Cadiz, generally being a frightful nuisance and terrorising the local populace. Tales of their pillage and debauchery and sacrilege spread throughout Spain. 
and the peasants as well as the soldiers rose up against against these appalling heretics defiling their churches and defiling their nuns. This ignoble skirmish continued for some time with no great advantage gained and on September the 29th Rook and his fleet withdrew and sailed for home. Now, they must have been in poor spirits and they'll be expecting a pretty hot reception when they arrive back at the Admiralty in London. However, news came to them that the treasure fleet from the Indies had been sailing for Cadiz, had heard they were there and had diverted into Vigo Bay. So desperate to salvage the situation, Admiral Rook and his fleet attacked Vigo Bay with much more ferocity than they had at Cadiz. They smashed through the boom which had been placed across the harbour mouth and destroyed 41 Spanish vessels in there. 15 of those were ships of the line. Now, a lot of this treasure had been carried inland when they heard the English and the Dutch were coming, but they still managed to carry off a million pounds worth of treasure for which the Admiralty were very grateful when they returned it home. And it was quite likely this... Plus, a word or two from Marlborough and Godolphin that enabled them to escape serious charges for their diabolical failure at Cadiz. And so, it's 1702. We have Marlborough has performed wonders on the Meuse. We have some naval half-successes on the coast of Spain. And the Margrave of Baden, he's doing his bit on the Rhine. But there's a bit of a shock in store for the Allies, and the shock will appear in the person of Max Emanuel, Elector of Bavaria. Now, Max Emanuel was a fine soldier and a very ambitious man. He was also quite a significant player in the power struggles of Europe. His family have already had a bit of a mention in this series, in that they were the Wittelsbach family. And we mentioned his son Franz Ferdinand back in episode 2 as being named heir to the Spanish throne. Well, unfortunately, Franz Ferdinand died... But that didn't curb Max Emanuel's ambitions. He set about devising a plan whereby his family would replace the Habsburgs as Holy Roman Emperors. And to help with this, he decided to ally with France against the Austrian alliance. He was hoping, particularly in this war, that he might gain some territories amongst the Germanic states and also the Spanish Netherlands. Now, previously, relations between Max Emmanuel and the Austrian alliance, the Imperial armies, had been quite good. He had fought on the side of the Imperial armies against the Turkish threat. But in 1701, he began secret negotiations with Louis XIV, pledging to build a new Bavarian army that could seriously challenge the Imperial Emperor. Louis thought this a great scheme and sent him subsidy after subsidy. But by 1702, Louis was starting to get a bit worried about Max Emmanuel's commitment. His payment of the subsidy became less regular. And so Max Emmanuel wrote him another letter reaffirming his commitment and setting out just how useful he felt he could be to Louis XIV. Now, Max Emmanuel had written this letter to Louis XIV, and this letter is preserved in the Austrian archives. And in this letter, he states that he's willing to make war on the House of Austria and neighbouring German princes. And he states in this that whatever lands he conquers must be assigned to him in any peace treaty that's made, and that no peace treaty must be made without this provision. He proposed that he would lull the empire into a false sense of security by entering into negotiations with them. 
And then, when they least expected it, he would strike what he hoped would be a deadly blow into the heart of the Empire. And so he entered into negotiations with the Emperor, asking for large subsidies and promising that he would send part of his army into Italy to assist Prince Eugene. But as part of this deal, he insisted that he must be given command of the armies in northern Italy. Well, most of the Allies were prepared to accept this in order to gain the help of the Army of Bavaria. But England stood out against this. Prince Eugene was very, very popular in England and very popular with Queen Anne and the Earl of Marlborough. So although they were keen to recruit the Army of Bavaria into the cause, they were suspicious of Max Emmanuel and wanted to know why it is he wouldn't serve under Prince Eugene in northern Italy. Meanwhile, on September 9th, 1702, Max Emmanuel decided that now was the time to strike. The Allied armies were heavily engaged. Marlborough on the Meuse and the Margrave of Baden was involved in the siege of Landau on the Rhine. So on September the 9th, 1702, 40 or 50 Bavarian officers disguised as peasants bringing vegetables to market overpowered the sentries at the fortress of Ulm and gained access to the city. The city was now in the hands of Max Emanuel, Elector of Bavaria. This now opened up the Danube to the forces of France, Spain and Bavaria in that Max Emanuel already had the fortress of Ingolstadt and now the fortress of Ulm so this gave them a direct route into the heart of the empire, along the river Danube. Max Emmanuel immediately sent a message to Marshal Catinat, so that his forces and the forces of the French could join up. Now unfortunately for Max Emmanuel, the messenger was intercepted, and so the French forces never got that message, and so the Bavarian and French forces didn't manage to meet up. The Bavarians and the French both thought they'd been betrayed by the other. And Max Emmanuel, fearing that the French had let him down, yet again entered into negotiations with the Emperor at Vienna. The Margrave of Baden, having concluded successfully the siege of Landau, marched up the Rhine and engaged the French forces that should have met up with the Elector of Bavaria. They fought a fierce battle at Friedlingen and both fell back, both claiming victory, and yet both badly mauled by the other. So there we end the events of 1702. We have an enormous amount of success for the Allies on the fortresses of the Meuse. We have success for the Allies upon the River Rhine, and a fairly major setback upon the River Danube. And so everything is very finely poised for the next year of campaigning in 1703. So next time, we'll have some more tales of treachery, and this time, it'll be from the Duke of Savoy. I'll see you next time for that. Bye for now.